We are back in uh, the 12th chapter of Matthew. We're going to be starting in verse 33, going all the way to verse 37. Not quite as ambitious as the last couple of weeks. Um, this is a, uh, a passage that's pretty well known, uh, both inside and outside the church. Um, unfortunately, that means that it's been misapplied a number of times too. So hopefully we'll get, uh, get us to the point where we know how to use this passage. We understand what Jesus is talking about. Uh, if you would, stand with me as I read our word for today. Matthew 12, starting in verse 33. Either make the tree good, and its fruit good, or make the tree bad, and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's pray. Father, as we go into your word today, help us to handle it with reverence. Help us to handle it with a proper understanding of what it means. And Father, help us apply the principles found in your word to our lives. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So, as we jump into this, I'm going to give you a refresher on how to handle Scripture. Just because, every now and then, it's not a bad idea for us to get a, uh, a reminder of how we ought to approach God's Word. Because there's a lot of wrong ways to do it. Um, we, we have a tendency... Uh, and this is a human tendency, we have a, a tendency to go into God's Word, and we will either read into it our own circumstances, or we will go find a verse and pull that verse out of its appropriate context and make it say something that it doesn't say. So we want to remember here, when we're going into God's Word, that it has one meaning, only one meaning. Okay, so if you ever start reading the Bible with the question, what does this verse mean to you, that's a problem, okay? Because the real question needs to be, what does this verse mean? And then we take what it means and we apply that to our situation. The first and most important rule for the proper interpretation of Scripture is to understand the context that the passage that we're studying fits into. That means we have to read the passage as part of a whole idea, not as it stands off on its own. Now sometimes that means that we have one verse that we're looking at, we need to take that one verse and read it in its paragraph. Sometimes if we have a paragraph, we might have to read it in part of a larger narrative. Sometimes we have to expand that narrative out to include an entire chapter or maybe even the whole book, in order to get that context. So that means that understanding Scripture requires work. It's not something we can do lazily. All right? We have to read the text and the surrounding narrative to see how it fits 
into what's going on in Scripture. We have to read parallel passages. So we're reading Matthew's Gospel right now. It might be a good thing for us to find a cross-reference and see where a similar passage shows up in Mark or Luke. We may have to read historical passages. You know, when your Bible has one of those footnotes that says that Jesus is quoting from the book of Isaiah or from the book of Malachi, you might want to actually flip back to the book of Malachi or the book of Isaiah and read that passage to see what was going on that Jesus is quoting. Once you find the context, you have to understand the literary genre that the passage is found in. Is there a difference between a historical book and a wisdom book? Is there a difference between the book of Genesis and the book of Psalms? Yes? Yes. There's a huge difference. They're written differently. A poetic book, a wisdom book like the book of Psalms, contains a lot of imagery that is designed to paint pictures as we read it, paint pictures in our head to give us an idea of the character of God. A historical book like the book of Genesis, for the most part, is designed to tell us a historical account. The book of Psalms doesn't tell us a historical account. It's different. So we have to understand the literature that it is within. Uh, If it is wisdom literature, we have to understand the poetic imagery, the apocalyptic imagery, so that we don't think that the author is telling us something that is legitimately, literally going to occur or has occurred in the past. For example... The book of Psalms tells us that God shelters us under His wing. One wing. So God is out there with a wing. That His eye is on the sparrow. So He has one eye. He has a nose because when He gets angry, His nostrils flare. And the earth is His footstool, so He has at least one foot. If that were meant to be literally descriptive of what God looks like, we would have a problem. Because Genesis tells us that we are made in God's image. That means I'm missing a wing, I've got an extra eye and an extra foot, and a whole bunch of other stuff that God doesn't have described for us. Right? So we need to understand the words that we're reading. Then we have to look at the historical setting. Who wrote it? What do we know about the author? Was it written by a Jew? Was it written by a Roman? Was it written by a a Greek? Was it written by an Old Testament Hebrew? Was it written in the first century? Was it written in the fifth century? By the way, nothing in Scripture is written in the fifth century, unless you're talking the fifth century B.C. So we need to know what the situation was. It doesn't hurt to know what the political situation was. You need to know what language it was written in. It does not hurt to have language tools. No, I'm not telling you you need to know Greek. I don't know Greek. But I have a Greek dictionary so that if I find a word in the Greek, I can then go look it up and find out what it means, what it meant in the Greek. Is anybody in here uh, bilingual? You know how to speak another language? Anybody? 
Okay, good. I'm not the only one. I took five years worth of Spanish, and I can ask what time it is and where's the bathroom. That's about it. That's, that's the sum total. But I do know from those five years worth of Spanish that things don't directly translate word for word. Sentence structure is different. Noun verb placement is different. The way we put together sentences in English is different than the way they put together Englishes in different languages. Sentences in different languages, not Englishes. See? I'm not even monolingual. Ultimately, what we need to look for is the principal meaning of the text. What does the text mean? Not what does it mean to me, not what does it mean to you, but what does it really mean? And then how does that apply to the situation that I am currently in in my life? This might be hard for you to understand and hard for you to believe, but there may be some passages that don't apply to your current situation. Notice I said your current situation. Your current situation is going to last how long? Right now. Ten minutes from now, your situation may be different, and that passage may have an application. So as we take this approach to this passage right here, we have to start at the beginning. This passage fits into the broader narrative of Jesus' encounters with the scribes and the Pharisees that we find in chapter 12 of the book of Matthew. Who wrote Matthew? Matthew did. Matthew was a Jew who was a tax collector. He worked with the Romans. He was influenced a little bit in his thinking by the Roman way of thinking. His emphasis in his gospel was on Jesus' identity as Messiah, specifically. Mark and Luke take a little bit different approach with the gospel. But Matthew is focused on Jesus' identity as Messiah. So we have a Jewish writer in the first century up in Galilee. By the way, this doesn't get written down in Jerusalem where the the central hub of Judaism is. This is up in an area that's a melting pot where there are a good number of people from different backgrounds and different uh, religious and cultural beliefs that Matthew writes this. The scribes and the Pharisees throughout Jesus' ministry in Galilee have been pestering him because of his activities not fitting the mold for a good Jewish rabbi. He hangs out with tax collectors. He hangs out with sinners. And by sinner, they mean anybody who's not a Pharisee. (laughs) Anybody who does not follow the letter of the law like they do. Jesus eats with people who are considered to be unclean. And this particular chapter is dealing with Jesus' identity and his authority and his ministry to people who need God's word. When we looked at uh, verses 22 through 32, the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan. He cast out demons by the power of the devil. To which Jesus says, well, okay, if I cast out demons by the power of Satan, then who do your exorcists call on to cast out demons? Because if they can cast out demons in God's name, why can't I? And if I have to be doing it in Satan's power, then don't they? This passage follows directly after 
that conversation. And Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. What in the world does this have to do with casting demons out? Well, let me put it into a little bit more vernacular here. You can't have it both ways. Either casting demons out is good, and the person therefore doing it is good, or casting demons out is bad, and the person doing it is bad. You can't have it both ways. If I am doing it in Satan's power, then it's bad. If I'm doing it and it's good, then I'm doing it in God's power. See how this works? And he gives this little, this little treatise, if you will, on trees. Jesus is not teaching horticulture, but it's a simple premise. In my backyard, I have a lemon tree. It's in a pot. I do not go out to that tree and expect to find plums. I expect to find lemons. I would not go to a tree that has apples hanging from it and assume that it's a pecan tree. Why not? Jesus says it at the end of verse 33. A tree is known by its fruit. Uh, yesterday, yesterday afternoon, or well, it started in the morning, it went to afternoon, we spent all day there. We went to Beauvoir down on the beach uh, to survey the damage from the water spout that blasted through and uh, because we've got a friend visiting who's never been there before, so we took her and she could see the damage. And they have a garden out behind the house. And along that garden, there's all kinds of citrus trees planted along the path on the right-hand side. I can tell you they're citrus by the shape of the leaves and the way the branches grow. I couldn't tell you if they're lemon, orange, lime. I have no idea. They could be grapefruit trees. I don't know. They're citrus. Until they grow fruit, I couldn't tell you what kind of tree they were. What Jesus is getting to here is if it was good that this man was delivered, then why do you got to complicate things and say that I'm only doing it because I'm in league with Satan? You cannot have it both ways. Now in verse 34, Jesus turns this on the Pharisees. He's not dealing with his own identity anymore. He's dealing with theirs. And I want to point out real quick before I jump into that particular verse. When Jesus is talking with people, there is only one group of people who really he doesn't take such a sugar-coated approach with. He, he tends to be very harsh, very straightforward, uh, and, and he even condemns this one particular group of people. And it's the Pharisees and the scribes. Uh, and as I pointed out on many occasions, I even talked about it in Sunday school this morning, the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious conservatives in Israel. They were the ones who stuck the closest to God's word, the letter of the law. And Jesus had the harshest words for them. Look at what he calls them in verse 34. You brood of vipers. Den of venomous snakes. What happens to a person who sticks their hand into a den of venomous snakes? You're probably going to get bit. And it's probably not going to be a good day for you. I know there's some snakes out there, the venom's not that bad, and so on. And, but generally speaking, if you stick your arm into a den of venomous snakes, 
you're probably going to die. Where does the venom come from? It comes out of their mouth. Through their fangs, but it's in their mouth. And that's what he calls the Pharisees. He asks them a question. How can your words be good? How can anything that comes out of your mouth be good if you are evil? Well, he just said that the only thing that comes out of their mouth is venom. You brood of vipers. What comes out of your mouth is evil. So if you can tell a tree by its fruit, right? You guys are a tree, and the only fruit coming out is evil. What kind of tree does that make you? Evil. That's what Jesus thinks about the Pharisees. Why do we think so badly about the Pharisees? The simple answer is because Jesus didn't speak very highly of them, right? The Pharisees did not wake up and decide collectively, we're going to lead the people of Israel into bondage. They wanted the people of Israel to keep God's law. Now, in this group, I will go out on a limb and say that I am relatively a church novice. We have been 18 years now regularly attending church where it actually meant something to me. Prior to that, I had attended church off and on. Dad said I had to. And then it became, Steph was going, so I wanted to hang out with her. Because if I sat next to her in church, I got to hold her hand. Church didn't mean anything to me. I wasn't focused on the preacher. But in those 18 years that we've been attending church where it actually means something to me, I've seen a trend... And I've actually, I actually saw this trend before I understood what I was seeing. We have a desire for holiness. Those of us who are Christians have a desire for holiness. Unfortunately, we generally desire holiness in everybody else's life. Right? Because I can justify my sin. Well, you know, God, I only yelled at that guy because he cut me off in traffic. I only cussed him out because he almost wrecked my car. You know, I only got angry because my wife burnt my toast this morning. And by the way, she did not make me breakfast, so she didn't burn my toast. That was, I made that up. We can justify our own sin in our own lives. We can come up with all kinds of excuses why we don't have that level of holiness. But at the same time and in the same breath, we will turn on somebody and say, you know, I saw you driving down the highway today and noticed that uh, you flew past me and I had my cruise control set at exactly 70 miles an hour 
and you went past me like I was standing still. And Scripture tells us that we're supposed to obey the authorities of the land. You better watch out, mister, that's sin. See, we have a very, very, very short way to go before we go from encouraging one another and and calling one another to repentance when it's necessary to becoming pharisaical in our life. The reason we don't like the Pharisees is because we see our excuse me, we see ourselves a little too clearly. Jesus has harsh words for that kind of life. We don't like that. Jesus says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In chapter 15, there's another occasion where the disciples are walking through a field. The disciples are always getting Jesus into trouble. Right? First time it was on the Sabbath, they were plucking grain. The next time in chapter 15, they're walking through the field and they're plucking grain and putting it in their mouth. And they didn't wash their hands. Oh my word. It wasn't just a matter of washing their hands for cleanliness. This was washing their hands for ceremonial purity. So the Pharisees taught that you had to wash your hands seven times before eating because seven was the number of perfection and that meant that your hands were perfectly clean. Okay? So the Pharisees looked at Jesus and they said, your, your guys, they're just, they're just putting food in their mouth and they haven't washed their... They weren't worried about germs or, or biology or them getting sick. It was making them impure spiritually impure. And in that case, Jesus' response, uh, I, you know, it's hard for us to think of, of the Savior as being snarky, but he was snarky. Are you guys kidding me? Don't you understand it's not what goes in that makes a person impure, but what comes out? Because what goes in, and then Jesus puts it in plain English. Right? I mean, it's not vulgar, but it's plain. He says, what goes in is going to come out. That's biology. That's not what makes you impure. What makes you impure is what's in your heart. And what's in your heart comes out your face in the way you speak to people. Like yelling at people for not washing their hands because it's going to make them impure. That's what Jesus says here. Your speech reflects... Your heart. If your heart, unconverted, is bent away from God, and, and I, I, here's my poor microphone stand. It's been a while since I've done this visual. I'm going to... I'm going to use my poor microphone stand again. This is the human heart. This represents God. This is an unsaved heart. It is bent away from God. It is not inclined towards God in the least bit. And it will never be unless and until God bends it. 
period. If this is the condition of your heart, then what is your speech going to look like? It is not going to be uplifting. It is not going to be building people up. It is not going to be pure. It is not going to be kind. It is not going to be lovely. It's not going to be the things that we are told to focus on. Instead, it's going to be bent towards the pursuit of those things that please the flesh. By the way, comfort is not a bad thing until you worship it. Food is not a bad thing unless you worship it. Pleasing the flesh is not a bad thing unless you worship it. So when I talk about the things of the flesh, look, when we leave here today, I am looking forward to a quiet lunch out with my wife, probably at a restaurant, probably a Mexican restaurant, if I had to guess, I don't know. And I am looking forward to the savory taste of that food. Is that sin? No. Because God gave me taste buds. If He didn't want us to enjoy the taste of food, He wouldn't have. Now, it would be sin if I sat there and ate myself into oblivion. Because my focus is on the pleasure of that sensation of eating the good food. See? But the heart that is bent away from God, the only thing it's concerned with And the only thing that is going to be reflected in the speech and the life of that person is going to be selfish, self-worshipping, self-concerned. Raise your hand if you drove here this morning. Highway 90. Anybody take Highway 90? No, 49. I-10. Pass Road. There's a few of us. All right, how'd you guys get down here? Dito Road, great example. Okay? Because Dito Road is like this wide, and there's a ditch this deep on each side. Sunday morning. You're headed to church. When are you most prone to cuss somebody out for cutting you off? Sunday morning on your way to church. And why do we get upset that they cut us off? Hmm? Well, because we want to be on time because we don't want to look bad for being late. It's not that we want to be on time. It's we don't want to look bad for being late. It's because they put our safety in danger. It's because they put our property in danger. What is this sounding like? How's my heart bent? Away from God. See, when Jesus says, out of the evil treasure of his heart, the evil person speaks. On the other hand, if we have a heart that is bent towards God... What should come out of the abundance of our heart? Purity and goodness and things that do build people up and things that do encourage people. Now, does that happen all the time? No. Why? 
because we're still human beings living with the flesh. The old man is still inside of us. The old man that wants to go back this way. See, what you guys don't see me struggling with up here is even though I can bend this, I can bend this quite a bit. When I take my hand off, what happens? It tries to bend back. So I can, I can manhandle this thing and bend it towards God. But as soon as I take the discipline off, as soon as I relax my grip, it tries to go back. That's the Christian heart. That's why we have to study. That's why we have to submit to God all the time. Is because our heart naturally wants to, wants to go back over here. And it's that struggle for us. Back and forth, back and forth. The heart that's been changed should produce a difference in the way we act, in the way we speak, the way we live our lives. There should be a difference. Now, what about a deathbed conversion? All right? What about the thief hanging on the cross? Exactly how much of a difference did he get to demonstrate in his life? None. Other than saying, surely this is the Son of God. Jesus said, you will be with me today in paradise. He didn't get the opportunity to go pay reparations to the people that he had stolen from. He didn't get the opportunity to go share the gospel and make disciples. But his heart was changed. Right? We still say and do things that probably shouldn't be part of the Christian life. That is not necessarily an indication that there's a problem with our salvation. Now, I, I, that word necessarily is important. That, that spring tension of my heart trying to get back to the old bent, that's a sign of immaturity. That's a sign of I still need to grow in Christ. That's a sign that I need to do more submission and less trying to stand on my own. And the more this bent shows up in our lives, the more we need to come back to God on our knees. But if what shows up in your life is only this, there's a problem. How did the meteorologists know that Tropical Storm Cindy was probable to form in the Gulf of Mexico? Huh? What did they study? Particularly, the thing that triggers a watch on a tropical system in the Gulf of Mexico or in the Atlantic Ocean is a drop in barometric pressure. It is a low-pressure system that the storm forms around. That's an area of really, 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 really warm air that pulls a lot of moisture out of the ocean, 
And as that moisture goes up, then convection starts and storms start to happen and then the rotation starts to happen and boom, you got a storm. They measure. We can use speech as a barometer for our lives. We can use the way we live, the way we act, the things that we do for our lives. Because we're supposed to watch our lives. The next statement that Jesus makes should be one that brings a little bit of concern to everybody in here. If it doesn't, you're not reading it closely enough. Verse 36. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Err. Hang on a second. Does that mean that what we say is going to be the grounds of our salvation? No. That counters the rest of Scripture. Jesus is not telling us that on the day of judgment where all of our words are going to be dumped into a scale, and we have to have more on the good side of the scale than on the bad side of the scale. No. That, that would be, uh, oh, I don't know, just about every other religion in the world except Christianity. Jesus is talking about our standing before God. Believers who will have our works judged to include our speech. We saw this in the book of Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, I believe it was, where Paul tells the church that your works will be judged. On that day, they will pass through fire. And the good stuff will come out as gold, silver, and precious gems. And the bad stuff will come out as wood, hay, and stubble. Good words, gold, silver, precious gems. Bad stuff, wood, hay, stubble. If those words and deeds reflect the love for God and a life changed by the Holy Spirit and a passion for making disciples in the name of Christ... We're going to stand before God unashamed. We don't have anything to be ashamed for. We stand justified. God has declared us righteous and we're not going to be guilty of those things. But if our words are shallow and idle and careless or empty, things that don't profit people at all, They will pass through the judgment, fire, and be consumed, and left as nothing but ash. And so though we will still stand there before God as a believer, we're going to smell like smoke, and we're going to be soot-stained, and we're going to be left holding very little in the way of treasure. Believers who come through that judgment may come out worse for wear, but they will still come through. See, as believers, we're not immune to saying and doing the wrong stuff. That's still part of who we are. We're not supposed to rest in that. The Bible does not give us license to do that. 
Jesus makes it very clear. We're supposed to strive to be perfect. As a matter of fact, the word strive isn't even in there. Scripture says, be holy even as your Father in heaven is holy. We're commanded to be holy. We're not condemned when we're not. We'll be judged. Believers will be judged. See, the first judgment is going to be the separation of the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the saved from the unsaved. All those who are on this side, all the sheep, all the wheat, then will have those things judged. Because what God has commanded us to do, He's told us to make disciples. So what did you do with Jesus while you were here? How many disciples did you make? Or did you sit back on your haunches and say, well, God's going to save who He's going to save. I don't need to worry about it. That's not how this works. Was your speech seasoned with love, with compassion, with grace, with mercy? Was your speech seasoned with selfishness and pride and envy and strife? What was the pattern of your life? I don't know about you, but uh, I would much rather my life be Seasoned this way instead of that way, right? Now let me go back to what Jesus said in verse 33. If your life reflects only this, there's none of this. And this is a hard thing to hear. This is a hard thing for me to say. I don't care if you've been in church your entire life. If the pattern of your life reflects this bent to your heart, look at what Jesus said in verse 33. A tree is known by its fruit. What does your fruit show? Now notice I am not telling you guys that it's our responsibility to be fruit inspectors in other people's lives. Judging the works of another's life is not what we're commanded to do. We're commanded to be discerning, and we are commanded to have concern for our fellow believers. So if a person professes to be a Christian, but their life doesn't show it, then we need to be willing to step out of our comfort zone. And this is out of our comfort zone, unless you happen to be a person who really likes conflict. And then there's other issues. To step out of our comfort zone and go to that brother or sister and say, I'm concerned for you. You claim this, but what I'm seeing in your life is this. The next thing that we say is the most important. We could say, if you keep living this way, you're going straight to hell. Jesus never does that. Jesus doesn't do that. Paul doesn't do that. P- 
Peter doesn't do that. James doesn't do that. John doesn't do that. In fact, nobody in Scripture does that. Or we can say, I'm concerned for you. How can I help you get out of the situation you're in? We've talked about it a few times. We talked about it this morning. Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you understood what this word means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. What Jesus wants from us is to walk alongside those people. Matthew chapter 18, where church discipline is explained. Jesus says, if your brother offends you, if your brother sins against you, Go to them one-on-one to reconcile, not to condemn, to reconcile. And if they repent, then what? You've won a brother. And if they don't, then you go take one or two witnesses and you talk to them. And if they repent, then you've won a brother. If they don't, then you take it before the elders in the church And if they repent, then you've won. What is the main idea here? Repentance. Repentance. Reconciliation. It is only at the end where Jesus says, if you bring it before the entire body of the church and they still refuse to repent, then you are to what? Treat them as an unbeliever. Okay, good. Then we can treat them as an unbeliever. Get out, you heathen. No. How do we treat unbelievers? Same way Jesus did. We have dinner with them. We pray with them. We minister to them. Whoa. That's a whole lot different than the church looks. I do want you to inspect the fruit of your own life. And if you find that most of the fruit in your life is hanging off of a rotten branch... Time for some pruning. And when you're done examining your life and pruning the rotten branches out, when you bump into somebody else and you see fruit hanging from one of their rotten branches, don't come after it with a pole saw. Ask them how you can help. How you can help get that rotten fruit out of their life. 